Hi everyone, it's Stu here, your dulcet-toned podcast host. Are you tired of ads interrupting your favourite true crime podcast? British Murders, of course. I mean, who needs a 60-second detour when you're in the midst of an immensely well-told story? The irony of this being an ad isn't lost on me, but I wanted to let you know that you can listen to British Murders completely ad-free by signing up for a Patreon membership. For as little as £3 per month, you'll get early access to ad-free episodes as well as a heap of other benefits. I've got a fair few bonus episodes you can sink your teeth into and every Monday I drop a new episode of the British Murders Weekly Journal. If you enjoy exclusive giveaways, my Patreon has those too. Head to patreon.com slash British Murders and choose either my OBE or KBE slash DBE tier to rid yourself of those pesky adverts. Plus, you'll be helping support your favourite podcast so that I can offer you even more content going forward. I'd say that I'll shut up now, but you've got the rest of the episode to listen to. Back to you, Stu. You are now listening to British Brothers, the True Cry Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast that focuses exclusively on British murder cases and serial killers. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this is the ninth episode of season seven. I hope you've had the chance to listen to last week's episode on the divisive case of Luke Mitchell. It's been interesting hearing your feedback on that one. Before we get into this week's episode, let's break the ice as we always do. The show's first opening icebreaker segment is this. True facts that sound like bullshit. Did you know zebras and tigers each have a unique stripe pattern, much like a human fingerprint? How interesting. The show's final opening icebreaker segment is this. Random quote of the day. If you set your goals ridiculously high and it's a failure, you will fail above everyone else's success. James Cameron, famous film director. This week's case was suggested on YouTube by listener Francesca Chalinor. We're in Wales again, so it's a good chance for me to continue practicing my pronunciations whilst also apologising in advance for any that I inevitably get wrong. We're in the market town of Machincleth this week, located in the county of Powys. Powys, we'll go with Powys. Here's five quickfire facts about Machincleth. I am just going to call it Mackincleth going forward. I'm not going to do that accent every time. Here's fact number one. In 1404, Owain Glendower, a rebel against the English crown, was proclaimed Prince of Wales in the presence of envoys from France, Scotland and Castile in Mackincleth. Number two. On November 29th, 1644, a royalist army under Roland Pugh, Lord of Meyrened, met a parliamentary force under Sir Thomas Middleton of Chirk near the Diffie Bridge, could be Diffie Bridge. The victorious parliamentarians proceeded into Mackincleth to burn houses used by the royalists. Number three, Owain Glindower's Parliament House is a Grade Two listed building in Mackincleth. It was in a building on the site that Glindower called his famous parliament in 1404. Nowadays, it's a museum and information centre. Number four, Mackincleth's most famous landmark is the town clock, aka the Castle Ray Memorial Clock. Built in 1873, it marked the 21st birthday of Charles Stuart Vane Tempest, 
Viscount Castlereagh, the eldest son and heir of the Marquess and Marchioness of Londonderry. And number five, another grade two listed building, Royal House, much easier to say, is a timber-framed townhouse dated 1559. The Royal House was a combination shop and dwelling, with the first documentary evidence showing it occupied in 1581. As of the 2011 census, the estimated population of Mackincleth was 2,235. Let me quickly advise you that this podcast contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners. Discussions this week include the murder of a child and child pornography. As always, listener discretion is advised. If this isn't going to be the episode for you, feel free to skip it. Our villain this week was born on November 6, 1965, and was the middle child of three to his parents, Graham and Pamela Bridger. The married couple named their second child and first son, Mark Leonard Bridger. Now, I have two possible birth locations for Mark. One source states the town of Sutton as his birthplace, whereas another claims he was born in Carsholton. Regardless of which one is correct, both are located in South London, so we'll just say he was born there. All I could find about Mark's early years was that he completed high school, John Ruskin Grammar was where he went, and left with seven Certificate of Secondary Education qualifications. Better known as CSEs, they were replaced by General Certificate of Secondary Education Qualifications, aka GCSEs, in the late 80s. After leaving high school, Mark decided to further his education rather than jump in straight into the world of full-time employment. He attended Croydon College in South London and studied engineering. What came of his further education? I don't know. Mark's plan, no doubt influenced by his father, a City of London police officer, was to join the emergency services sector. Rather than joining the police, Mark decided to give the fire service a go and began training in 1984 when he was 19. He didn't last long in the role, around six months before withdrawing. The reason for doing so was stated in his resignation letter. He said he simply didn't feel he was good enough to meet the high standards set by the service. He also cited personal problems as a key factor in the decision, which is attributed to the breakdown of a relationship with his partner at the time. Mark and his partner had recently welcomed their first child, a son, into the world before the breakup, so the split took even more of a toll. It's thought that Mark used the reasons given in his resignation letter as an excuse because, behind closed doors, things were a lot less straightforward. The truth was that Mark was in trouble with local law enforcement due to possessing a firearm and owning an imitation firearm with intent to commit an offence and theft. He'd attempted to hold up a post office, but failed miserably. The details of the botched armed robbery are not known, but 19-year-old Mark Bridger pleaded guilty to each of the charges posed to him and was placed on probation for two years. This eventful period of Mark's life came to a head when he decided to move to South Wales, a place he knew rather well due to his grandma being based there. According to our villain, at first he lived rough after purchasing a load of camping equipment. He claims to have lived on the beach for a few weeks, he basically slept wherever he could. It's worth remembering though that these claims come from a man described as an evil and manipulative fantasist. I take their authenticity with just a grain of salt. Mark was certainly playing the role of a drifter. He bounced from relationship to relationship, house to house. He married a woman called Julie Williams at some point in 1990, and the pair would go on to have two children, 
both sons. More criminal offences occurred in the early 90s. Mark was convicted of criminal damage, affray, and driving with no insurance in 1991, and the following year he was again convicted of driving while disqualified and without insurance. By that point, I believe Mark had established Mackincleth as his home, though he had previously lived in areas including Porth Madoch, Blainai Festiniog, and Bala. His colleagues at the many jobs he worked over the next couple of decades would describe him as a charismatic grafter, the ideal colleague. He didn't half work a wide variety of jobs, by the way. Mark spent time working as a chef, a waiter, a car recovery mechanic, and a forestry worker. In his spare time, Mark would top up on his pre-existing knowledge of the British Armed Forces and even went to the extreme length of falsely claiming to have been in the SAS. His friends and colleagues were wowed when he told them outlandish stories about his time spent as a bomb disposal expert who was a key player during the Troubles. He said he even had to change his name as a means of protecting himself and his family from retaliation from the IRA. It was all complete bollocks. The marriage to Julie Williams eventually ended and Mark found another partner very quickly. Elaine Griffiths was his next long-term partner and two more children came along, a boy and a girl, taking Mark's running total to five. Another of Mark's jobs was that of a lifeguard at a local leisure centre. This would have been seen as a dream job to Mark Bridger due to the proximity he would be required to have with young children. No evidence has been found of any wrongdoing by Mark whilst in that role, but based on what you'll hear soon, you may find that hard to believe. Mark, or Buster, as the wannabe tough man liked to call himself, separated from Elaine around 2004. That autumn, the police were called to break up a domestic situation that led to Mark threatening a police officer with a machete. He was convicted of battery and threatening a police officer. The battery, I assume, was related to an assault on Elaine. Based on the lack of information available regarding his punishment, one assumes he either received a short jail sentence or was placed on probation once more. Three years later, in April 2007, Mark was called to court again after punching his landlord's son. The assault reportedly stemmed from an argument over a boiler. His punishment for that offence was a suspended jail sentence. Mark's next long-term partner was Vicky Fenner, whom he met in late 2010. I understand that Vicky has two kids of her own and may have had one with Mark because in total he has six kids, but perhaps his sixth child was with someone else. I'm not sure. In late August 2012, Mark moved into a rented cottage named, and I'm not making this up, Mount Pleasant. It's a sickening name when you learn what likely happened inside those walls. By this point, Mark was drinking heavily and relied on antidepressants to function. Those two substances are far from a match made in heaven. Mixing the two can be potentially fatal. Towards the end of September 2012, Mark and Vicky's relationship was on the rocks and the man referring to himself as Buster wasn't handling it well at all. Thus far, I've kind of alluded to what Mark was privately into, but I haven't explicitly stated it. Mark Bridger, by definition, is a paedophile. Whilst alone in his optimistically named rented cottage, Mark would browse Facebook to creep on some of the young girls in the town who he saw in the flesh on a regular basis. He'd do this whilst drinking alcohol, wine and cider being his tipples of choice. One of the girls he was particularly interested in saving photos of was five-year-old April Jones. 
April Sulin Jones, so named after her month of birth, was born prematurely at 34 weeks on April 4th, 2007, to her parents Paul and Coral Jones. Weighing only 4 pounds 2 ounces at birth, April remained in intensive care for a fortnight before she was strong enough to be taken home to meet her older siblings, Jasmine and Harley. Whilst researching this case, I read a wonderful yet heartbreaking article written by Laura Clements for Wales Online, in which she spoke at length with April's older sister, Jasmine. As with all my resources, I've linked it in the show notes and urge you to give it a read. At the age of three, April was diagnosed with cerebral palsy down her left side from her hip to her leg. A trip to the doctor was brought on by April's frequent stumbles and clumsiness at home. She was also later diagnosed with a hole in the heart. Despite those diagnoses, April was your typically spirited little girl who certainly wasn't going to let her conditions define her. One of her favourite things to do was to play out with her friends in the street, look at the beautiful butterflies flying by, just enjoy being a kid. The innocence of children, honestly, it's one of the most beautiful things you can witness, but sadly, it's also the thing that predators take advantage of the most. Our main timeline starts on October 1st, 2012, with Mark Bridger receiving a text message from Vicky Fenner in which she informs him that their relationship is done. At around the same time, April was likely eating her breakfast in preparation for school. She'll have been around a month, if not slightly less, into her second year of primary school education, known as Year One, after finishing reception the previous year. April was then taken to school by her dad, Paul, and she had another of her many fun days of learning. At lunchtime that day, Mark apparently brought up an image he'd previously saved on his computer and took a good long look at it. The image was that of a cartoon character, a girl, with her limbs bound being sexually assaulted by an adult. At 2.25pm, Mark logged into his Facebook account and sent messages to three separate women asking them if they were free and fancied meeting him for a drink. No strings attached. They all declined. Paul and Coral Jones, April's parents, collected April from school and took her straight to the local leisure centre for a swimming lesson. Once they dropped her off, Paul and Coral returned to her school to attend a parents' evening. They were no doubt over the moon when they heard April's glowing report from a teacher. Their youngest child was doing so, so well in school. That's all a parent wants to hear. It seems as though Mark attended the same parents' evening at April's school because April's head teacher, Gwen Glynn, recalled speaking with him that night at around 5.20pm. It's not clear exactly why he was there, though. Given the volume of relationships he had with women in the small community... He may have been there to attend the parents' evening for legitimate reasons, but Gwen Fair noted how he appeared to be slightly inebriated. Mark was also seen speaking to a teenager who previously attended the school, no doubt there with her family on behalf of one of her siblings, which appeared strange to Gwen Fair. She would later say in court, Mr. Bridger was always confident, courteous and charming. He often appeared charismatic even. By 5.40pm, April and her seven-year-old best friend had completed their swimming lesson and were spotted on CCTV leaving the leisure centre with Coral. Taking both girls back to the Jones family home on the Brinigog estate, Coral fed them their tea and left them to watch a film. Meanwhile, Mark had since left the primary school and was out prowling the estate. 
He was seen by several witnesses attempting to make conversation with a local 10-year-old girl and even reportedly invited her over to his house for a sleepover. Back in the Jones house, April was begging her mum and dad to let her outside to play for a little bit with her friend. Initially, Paul and Coral said no, insisting that it was too late. Knowing firsthand the persuasive powers of a young girl, I'm sure April's case to be allowed out was more than compelling. Eventually, April's parents acquiesced and out she went on her pink bike. That was at roughly 7pm. Within half an hour, April Jones would seemingly disappear from the face of the earth. The story will continue after these quick messages. And now, back to the story. Whilst playing outside with her friend, April was approached by Mark Bridger at some point between 7 and 7.30pm. He had pulled up to the girls in his blue lander of a discovery and asked April to get inside, which she did. That's the chain of events according to April's friend. And this doesn't appear to have been one of those dramatic snatching situations where April was grabbed and shoved into the vehicle whilst kicking and screaming. She knew who Mark Bridger was. He was a familiar face who she thought could be trusted. But how did she know him? Here's some context. Back in the early 90s, Paul Jones knew Mark Bridger. The pair were in relationships with two sisters. At one point, Paul loaned Mark a book about SAS survival tactics and never saw it again. Mark claimed to have misplaced it. The dark similarities between what happened to Paul's book in the 90s and his daughter in the 2010s at the hands of Mark Bridger are extremely disturbing. Unlike the lost book, which Paul later retrieved, April never came home. At 7.20pm, Coral sent Harley out into the street to retrieve his little sister. He returned around 10 minutes later with no April. He explained that she was nowhere to be seen and told them what April's friend had said happened with the strange man and the vehicle. At 7.19pm, just a minute before Harley was sent out to look for April, Mark Bridges' Land Rover was spotted on CCTV driving past the Mackincleth War Memorial. A male witness recalled seeing the vehicle drive past a minute later as he was filling his own car with fuel at Harry Tuffin's garage. Given the chain of events I've just gone through, April was more than likely in Mark's car at the time he was spotted by both the CCTV camera and the witness. No further sightings of Mark's Land Rover were made that day. Shortly after Harley returned home with the devastating news, Coral phoned the police and explained that she believed her daughter had been kidnapped. That one phone call sparked the biggest search for a missing person in UK police history. A statement was released that night by Diffid Powers Police after the Child Exploitation and Online Protection Unit, CEOP, triggered the National Child Rescue Alert System. The CRA is comparable to the USA's Amber Alert System. It aims to quickly engage the entire community via all media channels in the search for the child, offender or any specified vehicle through reports of relevant information to the police. Within 24 hours of a national hotline being created, over 1,200 calls were received from members of the public attempting to help locate April. Members of the Mackincleth community were out searching for April through the night and well into the morning of the following day, October 2nd, 2012. Posters were put up all over the town and people from throughout the UK descended on Mackincleth to aid the volunteers with their search. Throughout October 2nd, Mark Bridges' movements can be tracked via CCTV cameras. He began his day by carrying what looked like a rolled-up plastic bag up a landslide in Kynwiz, the village in which he lived. 
It's spelled C-E-I-N-W-S. I'm, I'm saying Kynwes, it's probably wrong. Later that morning, he was spotted walking his sheepdog around the cottage, which appeared to have billowing smoke coming out of its chimney. By mid-afternoon, Mark Bridger, the man responsible for April Jones's disappearance, joined one of the many search teams. He explained that he'd been looking around the cottage grounds but hadn't found anything. His behaviour was noted as odd by the other volunteers and within an hour he'd been recognised by some as the man whose car April had got into the previous evening. He was arrested on suspicion of April's abduction at around 3.30pm that day as he made his way to Mackincleth. Police were happy that he met the abductor's description and decided to take him in for questioning. The massive search continued into the night. The police dog unit was called in to help, as were mountain rescue teams, but still, no trace of April could be found. Mark's Land Rover Discovery was seized from a local garage, and a photo of it, as well as confirmation of Mark's name, was released to the public. By October 4th, 2012, the search had extended outside of Mackincleth, with an estimated 15 villages being searched by almost 500 locals. As the police appealed to the public once more, two and a half thousand calls were received, with some explaining that Mark lived at a rented cottage in the village of Kynwys. Mount Pleasant was then searched by the police. Inside, they discovered the shocking hidden pleasures of a sadistic paedophile. He had a video player which had been paused in the middle of a brutal rape scene in the 2009 horror film The Last House on the Left a remake of Wes Craven's controversial 1972 film of the same name. If you've seen the film, you know which scene I'm referring to. Mark had the video paused on that portion, and one source even said he'd only recorded that one scene. The rest of the film was of no interest to him. A search of Mark's computer revealed his collection of child sex abuse and rape scene images. He also had a folder on his computer dedicated to well-known young murder victims such as Holly Wells and Jessica Chapman who were murdered by Ian Huntley in 2002. Another image was that of 13-year-old schoolgirl Caroline Dickinson who was raped and murdered by Spanish murderer Francisco Acmont in 1996. He also had images saved from Facebook including several of April Jones and her older half-sisters. Back in Mackincleth, Coral Jones had urged members of the local community to help her cover the town with pink ribbons, April's favourite colour, to show their support, which they did. The hashtag FindApril began trending on Twitter in the UK. The whole nation was hoping and praying for her safe return. By October 5th, 2012, the police had formally arrested Mark Bridger on suspicion of April Jones's murder. The search for April was now being upgraded from a missing person case to a murder case. A procession and church service was conducted by Reverend Kathleen Rogers on October 7th, 2012, and the following day, Mark Bridger appeared in court. At Aberystwyth Magistrates Court, he was charged with April's murder and abduction, attempting to pervert the course of justice and the unlawful concealment and disposal of a body. Searches for April continued once more into the night as Paul and Coral released sky lanterns and pink balloons to mark it being a week since April disappeared. Over the next few months, the huge search continued over an area of 60 square kilometres. 650 areas around Mackincleth were carefully searched by officers from over 40 police forces. In total, 700 homes were visited during house-to-house inquiries, 2,000 hours of CCTV footage were watched, over 4,500 hotline calls were received and over 1,000 written statements were handed in and looked at. 
Even after all that, April's body could not be located. The results of thorough searches of Mark's cottage started coming through at this point, and it wasn't good news. Within his fireplace were fragments of a human skull, a juvenile. You'll recall how the cottage's chimney was billowing smoke a day after April disappeared. April's blood was also reportedly found near a set of knives inside the cottage, which were placed near the wood burner. One of the knives looked to have been burned in a fire. Other than that, the cottage was miraculously clean. Too clean, if you catch my drift. Mark had clearly attempted to conceal any evidence after killing April. The common consensus is that after murdering her, Mark disposed of April's body by burning it in the wood burner, or at least part of it. Given what we know about cremation, the fire would have been nowhere near hot enough to achieve it, so I think it's fair to say that April's body was likely buried somewhere else. Mark told the police that on October 1st, he was drunk and had accidentally run over April with his car, killing her. His memory was conveniently hazy after that. He claimed he did not recall disposing of her body, and if he did, he had no idea where. On January 14th, 2013, Mark Bridger appeared at Mould Crown Court and reiterated that April's death was an accident that he was, quote, probably responsible for. He pleaded not guilty to her murder and a trial date was set for April 29th, 2013. On April 4th, 2013, the day that April would have celebrated her sixth birthday, her family released hundreds of pink balloons into the sky with the entire community watching. Just over two weeks later, on April 19th, 2013, the six-month search for April Jones was called off by Diffid Powys Police. A statement released by the force said, It has been a massive search operation where an area of 60 kilometres square has been searched, including over 300 specific search areas. The terrain is extremely challenging. The mountains, gorges, streams and waterfalls in the area mean extra care has to be taken and specialist safety equipment has to be worn. The force made a commitment to search until all viable lines of inquiry were complete. Mark Bridges' trial began at Mould Crown Court on April 29, 2013, 10 days after the search for April was called off. The month-long trial ended on May 30, 2013, after the jury unanimously found Mark guilty of April's murder. It took the jury just four hours to reach that decision. Mark was also found guilty of the other two charges, child abduction and perverting the course of justice. Mr Justice John Griffith Williams explained that, in Mark's case, a life term with a minimum tariff, it wasn't sufficient. He therefore handed Mark a whole life order, meaning he will never be given the chance to apply for parole and will spend the rest of his days in the prison system. In his closing statement, Judge Griffith Williams said, There is no doubt in my mind that you are a paedophile who has for some time harboured sexual and morbid fantasies about young girls. What prompted you to live out one of those fantasies is a matter for speculation, but it may have been the combination of the ending of one's sexual relationship and your drinking. I cannot infer from the evidence where you murdered her, but if she was alive when you took her to the house, she died there. How you disposed of her body must remain a mystery. It will serve no purpose for me to speculate as to what happened, but all the indications are that you burned at least a part of her in the wood burner. The following heartbreaking words were just some of those read out in court on behalf of Coral Jones. I will never see April smile again or hear her stomping around upstairs and on the landing. We will never see her bring home her first boyfriend and Paul will never walk her down the aisle. How will we ever get over it?
Detective Superintendent Andrew John had the following to say after Mark Bridger was sentenced. Justice has been done and Mark Bridger, an evil and manipulative individual, will have his liberty taken off him. He abducted and murdered April and has then gone to enormous lengths to destroy the evidence, conceal his involvement and avoid detection. Two months after his conviction, Mark Bridger was attacked by a fellow inmate at HMP Wakefield with a makeshift blade. The attackers apparently left his face permanently scarred. April Jones's funeral was finally held on September 27, 2013 at St Peter's Church. Over 200 people joined the memorial service held by Reverend Kathleen Rogers. The entire town of Mackincleth was turned pink in April's honour. It was later revealed that Mark Bridger had secretly confessed to having killed April to a prison chaplain at HMP Manchester whilst being held on remand. Her body, so said Mark, was disposed of in a nearby river, possibly the River Dovey. That piece of evidence would not be submitted during the trial as the Crown Prosecution Service decided to omit it. The jury was not privy to the legal arguments regarding said evidence. On March 13th, 2017, a debate took place in Westminster Hall regarding sex offenders remaining on the sex offenders register for life. Referred to as April's Law, it came on the back of April's family launching a petition that gained over 100,000 signatures, meaning it had to be considered for debate in Parliament. Unfortunately, a Supreme Court ruling means that sex offenders have the right to appeal against staying on the sex offenders register for life. Home Office Minister Sarah Newton said, I am very sympathetic to the demands of the petition and the concerns of the Jones family, and I really understand why they feel this petition is necessary. It is precisely because we are determined to do everything we can to protect the public from predatory sex offenders that we made the minimum possible changes to the law to comply with the ruling. Mark Bridger was not a registered sex offender when he killed April, but based on what the police found on his computer, he really should have been. He remains imprisoned in HMP Wakefield to this day, despite requesting a change of prisons after being slashed across the face by a fellow inmate. April Jones's body has never been found. And that was the story of British murderer Mark Bridger. Thanks again, Francesca Chaloner, for suggesting that case. I'd love to hear everyone's thoughts about it. Really, really tough one to research this. I've got a daughter that's round about April's age. When you read about what she was like and her personality, it's just so heartbreaking because I know what that's like. I know all the parents out there know what that's like. It, can't even begin to imagine what they're going through. April's family did actually set up a fund in memory of her and it raised about 80 grand, which was given to about two dozen local charities and groups. A really sterling effort there from everyone involved and you know it's gone to some great causes. I've got just the three new reviews to read this week. Adoc243 left a five-star review on Apple Podcasts titled Love This Podcast. It reads, I've just started listening to this, but the episodes are short and snappy, so I've just had them on whilst I'm working. Lots of cases I've come across before. I too share the morbid fascination as well, but it's great to hear it delivered so well and with a wry Yorkshire sense of humour. It's not a disrespectful tone though, it's a defo northern thing. Cam Hales left a five-star review on British Murders titled Fantastic Podcast. That reads, Up there with the best true crime podcasts out there. Short episodes and concise. No chit-chat, just pure storytelling. And finally, Sash Knighton recommended the show on Facebook by saying, Absolutely brilliant podcast. Never been interested in podcasts until now. 
I've been listening to Stuart for a few weeks. I can honestly say I'm not bored. Stories are clear and straight to the point. Gives me inspiration to start my own. If the government didn't make me so skint, I'd buy this guy a hundred beers. Well, Sash, when you do get some money, send me them hundred beers. I could really use it too. As for starting your own pod, just go for it, mate. Just go for it. Thank you, Adoc243Cam and Sash, for leaving the show such lovely reviews. Suppose you'd like to leave a review of the show and have it read on a future episode. You can do so on iTunes, Facebook, Podchaser or at BritishMurders.com. You can also leave star ratings on Spotify. If you want to support the show on Patreon or buy me a coffee, you can find the links for each of those on BritishMurders.com. Please continue emailing your case suggestions to BritishMurdersPodcast at gmail.com. Hit me up on social media, reach out via the website, whatever your preference is. You'll get the episode covered. I do have a long list though, so please be patient. When I get round to it, you will get a shout out. That's it for another episode. Apologies if my voice has been a bit dodged this week. I, I think I'm getting a little bit ill. I can feel it coming on. But uh, hopefully I've not been, too, not been too deep and gravelly. Anyway, this has been British Murders. I've been Stuart Blues. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time. Cheerio. Cheerio.